Hello, everyone. This is Gerard Robinson from beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia. It is always a great day to be with Kara to have conversations about learning and how the curve will turn. How are you, my friend? <laughs> I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm very excited for for today's guest, Gerard. Um, as I just told you, I have been uh, fangirling Dr. Marguerite Rosa for quite a long time. She's pretty smart, so we're excited about that. Yeah, and she's going to talk to us about uh, big cities and money. And speaking of uh, at least one big city, as we discussed last week, the verdict uh, in the case of Minneapolis was actually announced uh, during the time that we were interviewing one of our guests. Uh, and since then, a number of things have taken place, not only in Minneapolis and Minnesota, but just conversations across the country about race, about policing and about sentencing. And one of the things I think we should do just as adults and people have different opinions about whether the uh, uh, the jury ruled in the right way or not, or if they were pressured or not, that's for another time. But this is a teachable moment for us to talk to young people about government, about our system of check and balance, to also talk about race and to talk about what we do moving forward. Um, we've been dealing with you know, the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd at the same time. Schools were closed, some open, some hybrid or not. There's been a lot going on in the year for many people. Uh, last week was an exhale movement. Um, but when you exhale, you often say, ah, but we're not done. A lot mm -hmm. more work to do. So look forward to more conversations in the future. Yeah, I, I agree, Gerard. That was actually my big takeaway with such anxiety leading up to the verdict. And then we had the verdict. And I think that many of us either expected that reactions would be very strong one way or the other, depending on what the verdict was. And, you know, what we did not hear was jubilation. What we heard is exactly what you just said. And I think it's what we so many of us feel, which is like, okay, this is, you know, doesn't mean things are, things are fixed. So, um, and it's just an overall... Uh, just sad, <laughs> just, just everything about it. As we said last week, you know, for the Floyd family and for the city of Minneapolis and, and so, so many people, but Gerard, we've got a couple of good stories of the week coming up. What's on your radar? So my story, in fact, isn't wonderful. Mine has uh, got the phrase spiritual catastrophe. So oh, oh. <laughs> this is an article from, uh, Dr. Cornell West and Jeremy Tate. Mm -hmm. uh, it was published in the Washington post and the title, Howard University's Removal of Classics is a Spiritual uh, Catastrophe. And so naturally, this story would stick out to me, given the fact that Howard University is my alma mater. And I started philosophy. And while philosophy is not the classics, uh, they're not the same boat, but they're the same body of water. And what the, uh, the university decided to uh, close the department. And Cornell West and Jeremy Tate, uh, for a host of reasons, think that this really is a catastrophe. Uh, they believe, like I do, that the Western canon, for a host of reasons, play an important role in giving us an opportunity to look at the great thinkers. And the great thinkers were not only people who were in the Western world, it also includes voices from Africa, Asia, Latin America, and elsewhere. And not only men, but also included women. And they're making the case that with the closing of Howard University's uh, Department of the Classics, where you could have that kind of diversity of thought, uh, that's catastrophe number one. Well, number two, they also identify that when you remove 
the classics, you also remove the idea of building a human being as a whole person, someone who believes in the liberal arts in the true sense, that their concern is that we're going to fall back into the role of simply seeing school as a pathway for preparing people for a job, not preparing people for a living and to think holistically. And last, uh, they believe that the closing of the Howard Classics program also signals just a, uh, a tragedy across the board. Howard University's classic department is as old as the university. Uh, it was created in 1867 when the university was founded. If you take a look at the, um, the National Association that actually teaches classical education, it was founded two years after Howard. Howard University has produced a large, uh, I would say maybe an outsized number of graduates who've gone on into the classics. We've also, at one time, I was home to Dr. Frank Snowden. He was a classics professor when I was at Howard in the 1980s. He uh, earned a PhD in the classics at, uh, at Harvard and for a number of years uh, taught at the university. He wrote a book called Blacks in Antiquity, and it was a study about Blacks in antiquity before race prejudice. So there are a lot of reasons why the closure has a symbolic push, given the fact it's the only historically black college in the country that had a classics program. And now with, the, with that gone, I think there is a spiritual catastrophe. I, however, realize that this is not a top-down discussion, that you actually still have the classics taught at the K-12 level, whether it is the, uh, the uh, Paideia model, across the country where they teach classic and classical thinking, whether it's publicly funded after school programs across the country that provide either in school uh, as um, access to classic training during the school year or during the summer. There are also charter schools uh, that are based upon the classical model. And even Hillsdale College in 2020 created an online opportunity for teachers, parents and students to uh, study a, or pursue a classical education uh, online. So while Howard University is saying no, while there are no more black colleges uh, that are in the classics department realm, there are still K-12 after school and hybrid models that are preparing people to enter those institutions, even if they can walk away with a degree in the classics. Yeah, wow, thank you for that, Gerard. That's a really, a provocative, you know, commentary on the problem. One of the things that I would say is, yep, we can hope that kids will get some of this in K to 12. My fear is that far too many of them are not. And one of the things we still, even all of these years later, <laughs> are not talking about enough when it comes to the curricula or the things that kids need to know to be able to graduate high school is, is the cultural literacy component and what, what knowing the classics a lot enables you to understand about, and I'll, I'll use the word um, dominant culture because I think as you've alluded to, too often in classics, you know, it's um, classics aren't presented in a way that really reflect the diversity of, of the, of the discipline. And so we could do a much better job with that, but, but about letting kids, you know, it's those subtle things that um, those who have access to a well rounded education that includes mm -hmm. classics really have access to um, parts of society, you know, where it's, it's often, I think you're, you would be very hard pressed to find a super expensive 
hoity-toity private school <laughs> that that doesn't touch upon the classics, that doesn't give Correct. kids at least some grounding in the classics, putting kids that don't have it at an inherent disadvantage. So if we really want to talk about, you know, real change in our education system, structural change with, with access at the forefront, I think that this is a really important conversation both at K-12 and higher education, but I think to your point, especially at the K-12 level. So I know sometimes I hear my own kids say things and we'll talk about like, oh, where do you think that notion comes from? Well, it's rooted in, it's rooted in the classics. So mm-hmm. um, at, at any rate, I am... Um, I'm going to take us to a story, Gerard. So it's, first of all, it's written by a friend of ours, um, Colleen Pronick, and she is um, a friend of ours from Pennsylvania, wonderful thinker, writer on all things related to opportunity and school choice. Um, she's also uh, a homeschool parent, so lots of experience with sort of finding educational opportunity where it exists in her home state of Pennsylvania. Um This is, we're bringing this to you from the Independent Women's Forum blog, and the title is School Closures Highlight the Need for Parental Choice. And I want to highlight a thread from Twitter that Colleen points out in this piece, and it's from a Twitter user who basically says, you don't get to talk about how women are leaving the workforce unless you also talk clearly about the need to fully open our schools. And I appreciated this so much because as a woman, as a working mom, as somebody who I am so blessed to have only gone through one spring of having to um, educate my children remotely at home. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it's I, I really feel this because we hear so much commentary about women leaving the workforce and what does this mean? And probably we should have been having um, shining a much greater spotlight on this conversation for quite a long time. But it is not always um, had in conjunction with the conversation about what will be the long term impact of these school closures. Um, you know, I know here in Boston, uh, our kids are just getting back to school. <laughs> so mm-hmm. in, in not, not even high schoolers are not even back to school yet. Right. So what are the ramifications for women who had made a decision maybe a year ago that they had to leave the workforce because of school closures or, or maybe a father too. There are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of parents in this position. What does that mean for their ability to find another job, find a job that fulfills them. You know, it's, I think that there are just, uh, there's a long conversation to be had here, but Colleen rightly links the, um, this debate, this, this glaring omission in the debate to the need for more parental choice. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that, you know, she's saying, Hey, if more parents had, for example, education scholarship accounts, they might have been able to put their children in schools that were open. They might have been able to find resources to help them uh, with educative childcare during the day so that they could have perhaps kept their jobs. And she also rightly points out that this is just a landmark year. Two more school choice programs passed last week, Gerard, in Arkansas, Mm -hmm. in Indiana, We'll have, um, they're both going to have education scholarship accounts for students. I mean, this is huge. And I think that um, we would be lying to say that this increase in demand on the part of parents for these more flexible programs where we can take state money and apply it to, you know, a vetted form of education that's going to be best for our kids um, is is largely a result of the pandemic. And legislators have had to, um, not in all cases, but in some cases, put politics aside and stand up and take notice of what their constituents want. So it's a great piece and I highly recommend it. 
Gerard, oh, go ahead. No, I was saying one of the unintended consequences of the pandemic is the fact that you have school choice programs moving through the legislature in ways we haven't seen in the last decade. Yeah, it's amazing. If you think about it, it took 10 years to get the first five education scholarship account programs, and you were at the Mm -hmm. forefront of this, um, Mm -hmm. up and operating, right, in this country. And we're going to double that number this year. Exactly. We're going to double that in one year. So um, that is just a testament to the fact that once once parents know, um, it, it, this year I think showed a lot of parents, you know, what they need, what they're not getting and therefore what they need and what their kids need. And I don't think they're going to sit down any longer. Many are going to demand it. So we'll be watching. Coming up after this, I mentioned at the outset, we are going to be talking, as I, I think I mentioned last week, One of the coolest topics, one of the nerdiest topics, one of the sexiest topics. I'm so excited for this, Gerard. We're going to be talking to Dr. Marguerite Rosa, who is, um, I don't know, in my mind, she is like the queen of all things school finance. (laughs) She she makes it accessible, understandable. Very excited to talk to her about all things school funding, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Coming up right after this. Learning Curve listeners, we are here, so excited, ready to geek out with Dr. Marguerite Rosa. She is a research professor at Georgetown University, and many of you will know her as the director of the Egenomics Lab, a research center exploring and modeling complex education finance decisions to, and this is the part we love, inform policy and practice. She leads the McCourt School of Public Policy's Certificate in Education Finance, which equips participants with practical skills in strategic fiscal management, policy analysis, and leadership. Dr. Dr. Rose's research traces the effects of fiscal policies at the federal, state, and district levels for their implications on resources at school and classroom levels. Her calculations of dollar implications and cost-equivalent trade-offs have prompted changes in education finance policy at all levels of the education system. She served as senior economic advisor to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and as a lieutenant in the U.S. Navy teaching thermodynamics at the Naval Nuclear Power School. Who knew? That's pretty cool. Rosa is author of the highly regarded education finance book, Educational Economics, Where Do School Funds Go? I hope we get the answer to that here today. And she has earned a PhD in education from the University of Washington and a BS from Duke University and studied at the London School of Economics and the University of Amsterdam. So now, Dr. Rosa, now that I have sufficiently embarrassed you by reading your very long and accomplished bio, thanks for being with us. Welcome to The Learning Curve. Well, thank you for having me. And I will answer where the school funds go. They go to labor mostly. And um, I say that because education is a mostly labor intensive enterprise, but I'm guessing we'll get into that. I, I can't wait to get into that. And But before we do, um, I have to tell you, I've told Gerard and I've told Jamie that um, I just so personally value your work. You were um, You were the first accessible author that I ever read about school finance when I was doing my doctoral work at Boston University. And, um, and I later, you know, went on to teach about it and used your work all the time. So it's just, we so appreciate um, what you do to, to help us all understand where school funds go. <laughs> so well, among so other things. happy to hear that. And uh, <laughs> yeah, that's great. Fantastic. If I if I didn't already have so many children and so many degrees, I think I would go back and do your certificate in education finance. But we can talk about that later. So, <laughs> um, 
you know, one of the things, and, and this is the question we want to lead with, because as, as I mentioned, your work like really informed a lot of my own path in education policy. And you have chronicled um, sort of three distinct phases of how American education has been funded in the last 40 years. So for our listeners who don't think about this every day, could you briefly summarize what those three distinct phases look like? And maybe you can talk a little bit about sort of the phase that we are in today, which feels maybe a little bit new or maybe just unprecedented in scale. And I think both of those, but we, we've talked about it in, in phases. First of all, what a lot of people don't realize is, Education is just so multi-layered. You know, we we obviously have the school and classroom layer, um, but schools are part of districts, and districts um, give the schools money. But districts get their money from local funds, state funds, and a small slice from federal funds. And um, so those layers just make it very messy. Um, but if we look back on on what we call the the phases, if you go back forty years ago. Schooling was mostly funded by local sources, and that made it very inequitable, just very inequitable. And you had these books like Savage Inequalities that um, profiled just how overcrowded and underfunded some classrooms were, 50 kids, things like that, peeling paint on the walls. Um, And then you would go in other places and really see different conditions. So the first phase we call that maybe 40 years ago that went on for a few decades, we're calling leveling up. And that's where we said, you know, enough is enough. Like every school needs to get some sort of minimum amount of money. And during that phase, states took a much larger role in funding schools. So they put matching dollars in for districts to try to get up to some sort of target amount. And we worked on equity across um, across districts in a state and made a lot of progress on that. We're not done. There's still more to go, but there's definitely been a lot of progress. And then despite a lot of infusion of new federal funds, some of which came in the form also, by the way, of federal dollars for um, Title I, which was the big poverty allocation to bring more money to high poverty schools. After that, we get into phase two, which I'll call the best practices phase. And, And I think the idea was we're not getting, we don't have great outcomes for the kids everywhere, but we spend a bunch more money. I think we need to tell districts how to spend their money, what to buy. They should spend the money on the best practices, smaller class sizes, more aids. Every school should have music, things like that. And um, the best practice phase went on for, um, you know, a few decades And that's responsible for a lot of the class size reduction policy that we see in states, policies that mandate, you know, criteria among staff and things like that. And um, and it didn't get that much of a return for students either. Um, There were some some really important improvements um, from those two phases, one of which was um, really significant improvements for kids with disabilities and the services they receive. I would say a lot of improvements in in some of the early grades um, around reading instruction. I think that we've seen some significant improvements there and some improvements in graduation rates in various places. Um, But across the board, I don't think people were really happy with what benefits we got for students from those new investments. And now we're in kind of a phase three, which I'll, I'll say is it's really a focus on trying to find a way to make money matter more. So when money is spent, how do we get a greater return on that? And it's not focused so much on best practices. It 
because that really explained very little of the outcomes that student got. It turns out if you if you did what what you were supposed to do and spend the money on these various items, you still had mediocre outcomes for kids oftentimes. So the focus now is a little bit more on who decides how to spend that money. Um, when the money gets to the districts, what is the equity across schools inside the district? Um, and what is, regardless of how the money is spent, what is the measurement of the outcome? So I think we're in this, this new um, renewed, how do we make money matter more phase? And then the federal government, you know, dropped almost $200 billion on schools um, in the form of a mostly blank check. The money goes to districts and the districts get to decide how to spend that. So who knows? We may be on the cusp of a, a, a phase four. Yeah. And I think really interesting there with so much money going to districts, one of the questions that a lot of folks have is it, we're, we're also operating and push back on me or if I'm wrong in, in the absence or at least a hold on what we think of as traditional accountability, or at least the accountability that we've known, the mechanisms that we've known for the past, you know, 20 years or so. Um, and, and that's, you know, whether, whether or not kids are taking tests or not taking tests because of COVID, um, uh, there's been a pause on sort of those accountability measures. Does that, to your mind, um, have any bearing on our ability to understand um, whether or not the things districts are going to choose to spend their money on, to your point, make a difference? Well, the big question is the difference in what? Not only are we pausing testing, but we haven't really asked districts for something in return for this money. Mm -hmm. it, it's money without goals attached to it. It's, I know it's been a hard year, here's some money kind of timing. Um, not even, there's no requirement that kids return to school five days a week. There's no um, requirement for how many hours. There's no requirement that kids get you know more hours added to, to make up for time or that investments are are targeted to kids who are um, struggling. We're not, we don't have, we're not have expectations about trying to get back to our rates of college going for um, students. We um, don't have even requirements that, or any expectation that districts go back and, and make students with disabilities whole for their missed services. So there isn't really anything um, attached to that. And I, I think there's a mention of learning loss um, and 20% of the money should do something about learning loss. But again, that could be anything. That could be smaller class sizes, more staff. That could be summer programs. It could be longer school year. It could be um, whatever you want to spend your money on to get kids to come back to school. So I don't, I don't think we have a, a much in the way of goals. I, I will say um, so. That leaves really a lot up to districts. I will say, in the absence of all that, there is something that has become more pronounced right now, and that is the financial visibility that we have, and that's because. Um, uh, a new federal provision in the ESSA law kicked in last June, and it requires that states report spending by school on federal, state, and local funds. And that means we will be able to see, maybe retroactively, but how how the money flowed. And in the absence of any other accountability attached to this money, I think we're going to have a heightened sense of interest in equity um, attached to this money. So when a district got the money, did it all go to a handful of schools at the expense of some of the others? Um, did it get thinly spread around? Did they just spend it on a security contract? That's a kind of a popular thing right now to, to, to spend the money to a vendor, to install cameras and that kind of thing. Um, hopefully to, I don't know, avoid shooter drills or things like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's the kind of stuff. It's the 
the whole range. Some districts are doing what we're calling thank you payments to staff, saying thank you for um, this hard year and here's a check. Um, and, and, and in some ways, how did that money flow? So that's, I think, what we don't have, we don't have outcomes accountability around this money, but we will have the opportunity to look to the financial accountability. Well, yeah, and that that feels promising. You're alleviating a little bit of my anxiety around what this could look like if we are <laughs> entering a phase four. I want to I want to ask you about so because even pre COVID, so you're you're mentioning that it could be a good thing that we might have insight into how the money's being spent at the school level. Something that researchers like yourself have have tried to reveal over the years. One of the things your research has revealed is that. Much of the money spent in K to 12 education, and you you talked a little bit about this at the outset, doesn't reach. It, it doesn't really end up e- reaching actual student instruction. Perhaps maybe if you consider that in the form of teacher salaries. But could you discuss a little bit more because we might be seeing districts spend their money on on a lot of non instructional things. Um, how in primary and secondary education, um, the growth of sort of bureaucracies and non instructional staffing has played into a, you know, how money spent and B, what this means for equity. As you mentioned, we're focusing on equity. What, what's the, what are we looking at here? Well, I think, so first of all, I'm not one of those people that says all the money needs to be spent on instruction, because if you can spend it on some sort of kind of administrative administration and your students perform really, really well, then have at it. Um, if, if, if you're spending a lot on administration and and the students don't feel like they're getting one more minute of time, you know, any more activities, any more electives or any sort of interactions with their staff, they're not going to college, then, you know, something's off. And so I would say um, the, the problem with in, in K-12 education, I alluded at the beginning to this multi-layered thing. So the federal government says, here's some federal money. We want you to account for it separately. We want to know what you spent it on. And the states say, here's some money for these programs. And the district says, I want to make sure that every school has a fill-in-the-blank counselor or whatever it is. And you end up with all these different fingerprints on the money, which requires that districts spend more of their time in compliance mode than they are in really thinking about what's best to serve students. Add to that that it's districts, not schools, that make most of these decisions. And um, and I and I think it's very easy to put more and more money at, at central office um, or in any sort of administrative position, and there's not much pushback on that, right? We don't have visibility into that. That's changing. Um, and, I'll, and I'll just share a, a nugget about how that can happen. And I had a, um, a, a grad student working with me for a while, and he went off and he got a job at a district as an intern. So it was an internship at first. Um, and um, the central office hired him. He was good at graphs, kind of thoughtful, uh, nice guy. And his intern- his unpaid internship ran out. And they said, oh, we really should keep create a position for him because he's good at graphs. He's a nice guy. And they created a permanent position for him. This was a district that was shrinking at the time. So that that's this kind of stuff. It It's just really easy to add a position at central office and say, your job is to be a liaison here and do this and that. And um, But that is going to change because the federal reporting, it won't show exactly what was spent, but it will show how much was spent and where. And so if 
more money is being added to, to um, central office type of positions, it's going to show up there. And we'll be able to see that, let's say a district gets $14,000 per pupil, the national average. Um, if, if you know, 9,000 of it is spent at the school and another 5,000 is spent per pupil at central office, we'll see schools push back on that. And that can become a counter pressure to what it's very easy to be bloating at central office because it's so not visible for everybody. Um, and I'll give you another example of that. And we've seen this in districts where the schools start to put pressure on central office to say, give us some of our money. And central office says, these are mandatory expenditures. We've got to spend money on this. And it costs less if we're the ones who do the cell phone contract and all these other big ticket items. And the schools say things like, we never use those cell phones. So don't, yeah. don't spend money on that. And that's the thing they don't normally have that push and pull. That's the chunk of money that doesn't have eyes on it. There's parents not seeing, you know, all the, the people it's spent on. So I think I'm, you know, I'm hopeful that will change. And when, um, when schools have full visibility into every dollar spent on behalf of their kids, even if it's done at central office, then we'll have more, um, more, I think, honest bottom-up pressure on those expenditures. You know, in that vein, I want to ask you about another, um, it's a visible resource, but with, I don't think the associated costs, I think they tend to be invisible. And I believe you've written about this too, which is um, the teachers as resources and how teachers are allocated what probably by central office you'll you'll tell us, but to different schools, can you talk a little bit about what it means to have sort of um, your least experienced teachers in some of the schools that most need the the most experienced teachers versus you know teachers with the most experience going to schools where um, where perhaps learning gaps aren't as aren't as wide or schools that um, aren't struggling as much as others in the district? Can you talk a little bit about how we allocate teachers as a resource and the visibility that we do or do not have? In to those allocations? Yeah, we did a bunch of focus groups about a year and a half ago with teachers. And we asked them, so how much is spent on your kids? And what what is that that's spent on your kids? And it was very common for them to never mention the teacher salaries. They would say, oh, they get we have money for them for books and, and computers, um, field trips, you know, busing, food. And we in the, the interviewer would then say, well, what about your salary? to the teachers and the teachers very commonly would say, Oh, that's not for the kids. That's for us. Um, and you can imagine me wanting to sort of jump through the screen on these ones, because I think there's the sense that that's not part of what we spend on kids. Of course it is. And what you're talking about is that it's very common for a district to say, you know what, I'm going to give one teacher out for every 25 kids, um, to every school. And, but the salary schedule is such that, at some schools, you, I mean, yeah, some teacher at the bottom of the salary schedule may be making 40, 45,000 a year in their first year. At the other end of the schedule, if you're in an urban area, that's that, that top salary might be 110,000, 115,000, or even higher. And so if you're a school filled with senior teachers, you're drawing down many more dollars per student in your building than another district in this, another school in the same district that's filled with very junior teachers. Um, so the, 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 how teachers are um, placed ultimately 
ends up driving a lot of the spending differences. And that's something we're going to really need to be thinking about more. So those numbers will also show up in these school-by-school expenditure patterns. Um, But a lot of people said, well, who cares? It's not a best senior teacher isn't necessarily any more effective than a junior teacher. But a, a school filled with junior teacher, first of all, doesn't have its money left over that it's technically saving to go spend on something else. It also has a revolving door of junior teachers. It's the only way you can be a school filled with junior teachers. And and that means um, the, you know, if you have a revolving door of teachers, teachers don't have relationships with families. They don't have relationships with each other. And the very fact that they're all junior is um, is a thing. It, it means that there are, there are fewer depth and experience to draw on. And so um, I think, you know, we've asked school districts, do you think maybe to free up some of those dollars, we could ask our senior teachers to teach larger classes or take on more responsibilities or forego a vice principal or something else. Um, and um, and they're, they're, you know, those, those are changing some longstanding practices in districts to do that. Um, so part of this is built in the salary schedule. I mean, we're paying two people, you know, one person more than double to do the exact same job somebody else is doing. And maybe we need to rethink the pay scale a bit so that we're not um, loading all of our money into longevity and not asking for something in return. But those are part of what's driving sometimes these inequities across districts. And I I wanted to just add on one one other thing, if I can, because you mentioned on the previous question about the bureaucracies. And I think Sometimes these bureaucracies are built in programs. And so you, you go in and you look in a district and you'll see twenty, thirty thousand dollars a student spent on on some high need students, maybe uh, um, students coming to the U.S. for the first time, don't speak any English, maybe have missed out on some school. And the programs aren't very successful, but these they're built in all these administrators. And you, you start to wonder, here's a family with two or three kids, came to the U.S. with no English bills, and we're spending $30,000 a student, sometimes $90,000 for all three kids. Is that the best the the best thing we can do for that family. Um, anyway, so I just I just put that out there. Great point. You mentioned Jonathan Kozel, and it brought to mind a couple of things. You mentioned Savage Inequality. I had a chance to read that when I was in grad school. Um, talked in part about New York, also talked about Camden. And then I think about an early book he wrote, in fact, his first uh, nonfiction book, published in 67, called The Death at an Early Age, and it was about Boston. And I mentioned these two cities because when we talk about Boston and New York today, they're spending over $20,000 per pupil, uh, while upwards to 20 to 25 percent of the students never graduate. And uh, those that do often score below basic on uh, proficiency reading and math scores. So when we talk about the savage inequalities, we often think these schools have no money. So could you talk about whether large urban school districts in America, uh, whether these achievement gaps are really that wide or whether they become, you know, so enormous that they've really become an employment status, you know, game for just adults? Well, I mean, the problem, the problem with the the big, large urban districts is, is deep and wide. And um, so a lot of times when we ask in our certificate of ed finance, what do you think are like the lowest per pupil funded districts in the country? And people think, uh, Chicago, and we're thinking, no, mm-hmm. the urban districts all all have those those 
some of those higher per pupil expenditures. I mean, not everywhere. The, the big districts in like Texas and um, Las Vegas, for instance, are, are relatively low spend, but um, but most of the urban centers are um, do end up with through various federal formulas and other kinds of things a higher per pupil amount. They do have higher needs often of students, and so you know, is it enough? That's a, se- a separate question. But I think the pandemic has really shown us that um, some of these larger districts do have a liability in their size and that they can't pivot. Um, they, they lack trust um, in the system. And so if the district says we're going to open schools next week, you know, um, the the collective bargaining unit says, no, no, you're not. The principals say, I don't know, don't look at us. The central office is one who makes the call. And the parents say, I'm not sure what to expect. And they're getting their messages on the news and things like that. So I think the size really is can be an issue, which is why some districts like Boston have um, have worked to decentralize and allow some of the money to flow to the schools and schools to make those decisions, um, potentially alongside their communities in a way that not every school makes the same decisions. And that's an attempt to make a larger district feel like a smaller, more accessible one for each school community. But we did see a lot of these um you know, during the pandemic, a lot of this, the large school districts, especially on the West Coast, um, become ones that focused a bit more on their employees than their core mission of the students. And I, I say that because, um, you know, even this week, schools are starting to reopen on the West Coast. And um, uh, we've we've heard cases where they want to make sure all their staff are paid in full, even if the services aren't delivered. Some of them gave out um, bonuses and things like that for, for teachers to work home. Where, where I just saw, um, I think it's Los Angeles is going to, as they ask teachers to come back, a $500 benefit for teachers to um, pay for their own kids' childcare, which felt a little tone deaf right now, given that <laughs> parents had been home for a year, you know, without the kind of childcare wow. costs. So I think um, some of that has, the pandemic has kind of spotlighted that. And um, and that I do feel, though, that parents are sort of joining and combining to kind of put pressure on back on those systems and say, hey, let's remember your core, your core business is students. Um, but it's harder in the bigger districts. So the follow-up. Uh, on the conversation you had with uh, with Kara as it relates to big spending, and we know you've spent you know a, a lot of money recently. If we add in race to the top, uh, Anessa, and we look at NAEP scores for reading and math, and we still see that there's some achievement gaps, could you talk about the strengths and weaknesses of federal K twelve spending and policymaking? Yeah, I think the the federal government we say it has always been a two-bit player when it comes to funding schools. And um, it gets, you know, the lion's share of the media attention, but it really, you know, eight, 10 cents on the dollar of what um, is amounted to the money in school districts. But um, but that's changing. But even with that investment, and the, the federal money was always a more focused investment, like here's the dollars, it's for kids with disabilities, or here's the dollars it's with, it's supposed to be for um, uh, students in poverty, um, that kind of thing. Or here's some some money. It's for turning around your lowest performing schools. And um, and I would say that we've struggled to show a lot of returns for that money. Not to say that the money 
hasn't mattered. It's just that we're not seeing the gaps closing in the way that people had envisioned. So some would argue, well, it hasn't been enough. It hasn't been significant enough investment to really uh, make those changes. And um, others would say, well, we didn't ask for that in return. What we asked for was a detailed accounting of how it was spent. And that's that's where we're getting this compliance mentality. Almost every district has a federal director who's got to stay focused on meeting the rules of the federal government with mm-hmm. what you're allowed to spend the money on and what you're not. And that is takes away from what's the best thing to help this kid um, be able to read, um, meet, be at the same level of their peers academically and, and have a successful life going forward. So I think that's where that challenge has become. Well, we're, we, so without that focus on outcomes, you know, we, we've had a hard time seeing that it's the federal money is the most prescriptive, um, and states layer on additional rules to it. And yet this new tranche of money is, is completely, um, lacking in rules. That said, it's also lacking in specific outcomes that it's asking for. So I'm not sure it'll be wholly different. And it's a great point about compliance and the fact that you have the local school system, someone who wakes up and goes to sleep, maybe it's two or three people, solely making sure they're compliant with federal um, funding and the rules that come with it. You find that at the State Department of Education as well, where maybe, you know, 8% or in larger states, 10% of their staff are solely focused on federal funding for everything from Title I, uh, you know, Title IV spending, just across the board. You know, here's another question in terms of philanthropy, because we're talking a lot about money, and there is a role that private sector uh, groups play. So Diane Ravitch and teacher unions have been very vocal uh, in the past, you know, decade or so about the role of private philanthropy and large foundations and what role they play in K-12 education. Do you think these criticisms are valid and what level of responsibility, you know, should American philanthropy uh, play in K-12's struggles to deliver better results across the board? So no, I don't think it is valid that philanthropy is all that's wrong with K-12 education. And partly because the money, I mean, if philanthropy could wreck public education, wow, they did it with one, <laughs> one penny on the dollar. <laughs> so right. like, we're talking about one, 1% or less across the total investment. And so I, I think it's sort of... Um, Hard to believe that that philanthropy could be that influential, and if so, then you know we should invite everybody else to to use those same strategies. I I do think there are cases where philanthropy jumps in and says we're advocating for this policy or that policy, and and it's important to remember to remember that we do have the democratic process in place, and that um, you know it, where philanthropy can invite more participation in public education, that might be you know that's certainly something that. Um, that we can all agree should happen. And the the other thing I think where philanthropy can promote transparency, more visibility, and that can sometimes be a good role for philanthropy to play. So it can showcase the, the spending or showcase the different kinds of technologies or in um, uh, vendors or things like that, or showcase successes in places that transparency around equity and things like that, that I think is a really important role because then it makes the system function more efficiently. And and there are 
those who say, no, no, I don't want that transparency. You know, we're just inviting more people in to advocate for what they want, you know, wealthy parents to say, this is what we want. And ideally that transparency will, will invite more people in uh, at each step on the socioeconomic and racial uh, ladder and racial groups to, to be able to see that. But I, I don't agree with the, the, you can't handle the truth approach. I mean, we, the visibility, um, you know, if, if we're if we're hiding things, we should do a better job of explaining why. Then, so um, I think that's a real opportunity for philanthropy, and we've seen some successes with that for sure in recent years. Here's a, a last question. It's more of a follow up to your use of the term trust. Uh, I agree with you. Uh, there are people who really just took things as status quo for uh, our public school system. You know that they were open, they'll close, they move forward. But the pandemic really raised questions about trust. We received, you know, billions of dollars. Schools did not open, or if they did, uh, there were just questions about accountability. You know, knowing what you know about uh, politics and about funding, any recommendations for all of us who are trying to figure out? We want to definitely, you know, work in partnership with our public school system, but there's just a, a trust factor about transparency, transparency and accountability. And at the same time, we in the public really aren't that up to speed on, in fact, how much it really costs to educate our kid at the local level. Just, you know, some thoughts on maybe how to help us bridge the gap. Well, what I would say, first of all, is that we have this unprecedented amount of federal funds coming in. And let's sort of acknowledge that a lot of that money is going to get spent in ways that don't have a whole lot to show for it. And um, and that's going to happen because the decisions are made really, really quickly and um, there are different priorities going on. We might be spending on COVID mitigation long after COVID mitigation is even appropriate. So who knows? That's, that stuff's all going to happen. At a minimum, though, I would think districts can and should take, carve off some of that money in a per pupil amount or per pupil type amount. Let's just say I think I think Boston is getting somewhere in the neighborhood of six thousand dollars a student. Let's say you, you started with a thousand dollars per student, maybe an additional five hundred or a thousand dollars more per student in poverty or English language learner, and you gave that money to the schools. And everybody can say it's equitable because we knew exactly the dollar amount. It's not hidden in stuff or this, that, the other. Mm-hmm. And and schools then engage with their communities about what what matters for the, for their kids. And I say that because we're going to go forward with a lot of summer programs and sometimes kids are going to show up and sometimes they're not. And it's hard for districts to know that we're going to, you know, plan for tutoring programs and then we're going to have a hard time hiring tutors. And I think we can make some of those decisions in a school where we can just walk down the hall and say, Hey, you know, any of the teachers, are you willing to do this tutoring program? Or we can ask our families, if we do a summer program during this week, will you sign up your kids? And the parents, Parents might say, well, yes, but only if it's full day. It kills us when you do half day. And then I got to go pick up my kid in the middle of work and take him over to daycare. And that push and pull with their community, I think, is is really healthy. And if we could allow some of that to happen at the school level, it makes districts nervous because um, they're saying, well, they won't spend the money well. Um, and, and some of them m- might not spend it on the way the district wanted, but we will have bought ourselves a lot of really meaningful engagement. We also will have done it in an equitable way. And so I think those are two opportunities there to build trust. If you're frustrated, if you live in a big city district and you're frustrated with the district, I mean, what do you do? Write some comment at the bottom of the chat box on the 
um, the city <laughs> newspaper. I mean, no one reads that kind of stuff. You look like an internet troll. So you, you're not going to go to a school board meeting and say, excuse me, the playground, the monitor's not really watching the kids. I mean, these are the kinds of things that parents want to engage with their school. They're going to go engage with their principals. So that's where the trust, we have trust there. Let's use it. Smart recommendations. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we also should acknowledge that you are a alumna of Pioneer Institute. So we always want to cheer for uh, uh, those who, you know, who supported us early. Thank you so much for raising not only good questions for us to think about, but providing us with a platform to think, uh, to think differently about funding and to, uh, you know, hopefully find a pathway forward. Thank you. It's nice to talk today. So, Kara, my tweet of the week is from Doug Tuttle in Florida, and it's from the 24th of this month. Part of the history of today's education choice movement, colon, Booker T. Washington and Sears head Julius Rosenwald joined forces to build almost 5,000 schools for blacks in the South. And it's referencing an April 22nd article by Andrew Feeler which is one I would recommend we all read. And it talks about just the important role that these two got together to build 5,000 schools during the 20th century. And I learned a lot reading it. Very cool. And we always like a nice shout out to friends of the learning curve. Thank you so much, Gerard, for that tweet. And next week, we are going to be talking with Jonathan Butcher, the Will Skillman Fellow in Education at the Heritage Foundation. So I will be looking forward to talking to you next week, my friend. Look forward to it.